in Genesis chapter 12, we find that God calls Abram, and he calls him out of the land of the Chaldeans. And towards the end of the passage, there was a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt, and while he was there, he he said, therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. And so then the princes also, Pharaoh saw her, commended her and Pharaoh took her and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for his sake. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this thou hast done with unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. So here we see in Genesis 12, Abram lies about his wife, calls her his sister. Then a lot of things happen. Abram becomes Abraham. And in Genesis 20, Abraham journeyed in, toward the south country and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? She said he not unto me, she is my sister, and she, even, she, she herself said he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore I suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Ouch! Abraham goes and he does it again. But that's not the end of the story. Abraham has a son. It's the promised son. His name is Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, his second cousin. And then in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac moves to Gerar. Do you remember who was king of Gerar? Abimelech. You remember what Abimelech had done for Abraham? Well, here we find... Isaac moves down to Gerar and dwelt in Gerar. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. And pre in the previous verse, it says, the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say she is my wife, lest the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah because she was fair to look upon. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. And how saidst thou, she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, lest I die for her. 
And Abimelech said, what is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might, have li- might lightly have lain with thy wife, and thou shouldst have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, he that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So here we find it again, Genesis chapter 26. It's like sometimes the mistakes we have an encounter once, we don't always learn from. And sometimes God has to bring us over the same territory and rescue us from the same things again. Um, You know, sometimes this can happen too in other areas of our life. I know um, I had a client in my business. I I worked as a programmer a couple years ago. And I had a client that was a local government agency. And they underpaid me for a lot of work Then there was tons of red tape and bureaucracy surrounding the whole project. And, but they promised they'd assign me a project manager and they had like $50,000 worth of programming that needed to be done. And, the, and then I was gonna be their programmer to get this stuff done because their IT department couldn't do it. And so they, gave, they were going to give me this other project, took them like over a month to get the project kicked off, and I went with the project and I finished it. But at the end of the project, I wound up doing 50% more work for free, simply to, make, to, simply to finish the project because their bureaucratic system wouldn't allow changing the contract or paying me for the work I was doing. So, like, it was a really stressful situation, and it's one where if I had paid attention to my gut after the first project, I probably could have avoided about seven months of misery during the second project. Um, The last three or four of those months being particularly challenging. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we do this as humans. We, We go through an experience or we learn a lesson and we don't always get it the first time. But Paul in 1 Corinthians, there's, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, writes to us of several stories that he wants us to learn from. You know, um, I, I once heard a saying, and it goes like this. Smart people learn from their mistakes. Wise people learn from the mistakes of others. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I think that, that Paul wanted us to become wise people. In fact, he even says it in the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you'll turn with me there, this is where our scripture reading was from. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I speak as to wise men, Judge you what I say. It's right there in verse 15. But go to verse 11. He says, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So here, Paul's referring to several stories he just referenced in the previous verses. And he says, Listen, I'm going to speak to you guys of issues and lessons that have happened in in the past history of God's people. And he says, all these things happened as examples so that you would learn from them. But not just you, 
especially God's people at the end of time. And so I think it's worth paying special attention to these words that Paul had to say because he was really speaking them not just to the Corinthian church, but also to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break down the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then when I return after our summer trip and they invite me to preach again, um, I may continue the study. But in the meantime, I can give you some tips on where to take the study if you want to study it yourself. But this, this we're going to have a old, good old-fashioned Bible study this morning. And this study comes from a study that I did over the course of a little over a year, um, 2010 to 2011. So um, it's, it's a study that I'm really excited about. I'm really passionate about it. And I really think that, Lord willing, we'll all gain a blessing from, from going over these verses. So let's start in verse 1, first word. Moreover. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Moreover, essentially, Paul uses this technique often, but essentially he's saying now, following on the heels of what I just wrote. And what did Paul just write? Look back a couple of verses. Know ye not? And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So here Paul says, don't you know that this Christian life is like a race? But we don't race for a corruptible mortal prize. We're racing in this great race of life for eternal life. Run that you might obtain the prize and know that everyone who runs is temperate. Everyone who runs has self-control. Moreover, brethren, on the heels of that, I don't want you to be ignorant. So to paraphrase this, then, um, self-control, being an example to others, and possibly being a castaway are some of these key ideas that Paul is following on the heels of. And then he addresses this passage to us, his brethren. To paraphrase, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm about to share something that will ne be necessary to prevent your being a castaway, allow you to be an excellent example to others, and show the importance of self-control. That's essentially what that first 
two, three words of 1 Corinthians 10 has packed in it. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues, I would not that ye should be ignorant. I don't want you to be in the dark about this. I want you to know and understand the following. This is important. Some other places that Paul uses these same words include Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you. You find it again in, in chapter 6, verse 3, where Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And that first word there is that, you know, know ye not. Um, there, 10 verse 3. Um, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, it, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Here, Paul's saying, like, being ignorant is not a good thing. We, so here Paul's saying, don't be ignorant. Don't d put your head in the sand like an ostrich. Don't, like, don't block this out. Don't be ignorant of this. You know, don't pass this by. Understand this. Um, our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What was the cloud for the children of Israel? What about the sea? What, what's Paul talking about here? Let's turn to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. Here the Bible tells us exactly what Paul is referring to. Numbers chapter 9, starting in verse 19. And when the cloud tarried long, when the what? When the cloud tarried long upon the tabernacle many days, then the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and journeyed not. And so it was when the cloud was a few days upon the tabernacle, according to the commandment of the Lord, they abode in their tents. And according to the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. And so it was when the cloud abode from even until morning and that the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they journeyed. Whether it was by day or by night that the cloud was taken up, they journeyed. Or whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle, remaining thereon, the children of Israel abode in their tents and journeyed not. But when it was taken up, they journeyed. At the commandment of the Lord, they rested in the tents and at the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. I love this picture of the cloud of the Lord. Here, yeah, the cloud of the Lord, when it's on the tabernacle, everybody stays in their tents. When the cloud lifts off the tabernacle, everybody starts packing up. Okay, everybody, we've got to get ready. God's going to take us somewhere else. We've got to get ready. The cloud's moving. Woohoo! We're about to go. We're going to go into Canaan, right? That's where we're headed. So here, uh, the cloud was that guide. It showed them where to go. It showed them when to go. And it showed them when not to go. 
I love this, this visible sign of God's presence that the children of Israel had. Nehemiah 9, verse 19. Turn there. This gives us another picture of the cloud. And then there's more pictures of the cloud in, in three chapters in Psalms. But those three chapters, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that tip in a minute. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 19. We see another description of the cloud. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies, speaking of God, forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. I love that, that presence of God showing the children of Israel where to go and when, shielding them, protecting them, guiding them. But what are these symbols meaning? Well, Paul makes it pretty clear, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 10, and we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. First, here's a little explanation of the phrase baptized unto Moses. That word unto is translated by the ESV as into. It could be translated of or by. Um, and, and if I were to use that same type of language today, I'd say, you know, that I was baptized um, unto or by Pastor Kulikoff. Pastor Paul Kulikoff in the Traverse City Church. If what Paul says is true in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 and 5, why would, the, why would he even bring up the fact that the Israelites were baptized unto Moses? Check back just a few verses, just a few chapters in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another... I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So if it doesn't matter who you were baptized by, if it doesn't matter that I was baptized by Paul Kulikov, why would, why would Paul be talking about these people being baptized unto Moses? Why does it matter? To show allegiance? Well, in the chapter before, or a couple chapters before, Paul said having allegiance to the person who baptized you was a really foolish thing to do. No, it's just to show that they had a compromise with God. No matter who mm -hmm. the person who baptized them. Mm -hmm. So let me suggest it this way. And we find this precedent given in Acts chapter 19. So in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1, we have the story of um, Apollos at, at Corinth, and Paul passes by. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? 
And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized at the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is why Paul says they were baptized unto Moses. The person who baptized you was probably also one of the persons who taught you, right? So Pastor Kulikov cleared me for baptism. Knowing that Pastor Kulikov is a Seventh-day Adventist minister, you could assume that I understand the fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church. In the same way, knowing who Moses was, we can rightly say that the Israelites had one of the best teachers available. And John speaks of him in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse, uh, I think it's 15, um, that the law came of Moses. I mean, Moses was respected for, for, bring, for leading the children of Israel you know, out of Egypt and then for communing with God and bringing the tables of stone down from God from the mountain. Like, you know, he was, he was a real bearer of God's law. And so here when Moses, when Paul says Moses, you know, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, here he's talking about who their teacher was, who they were learning from as their spiritual instructor. Uh, they had one of the best spiritual instructors possible, the meekest man on earth. Now, it's pretty easy for us to understand being baptized by water, the sea, but what about the cloud? What was the cloud to the Israelites? Right. It was a visible sign of God's presence. It brought light, it led and guided the movements of God's people, and was a place of God's strength. Um... It also, you know, covered God's glory upon the mercy seat, but the cloud didn't do that directly. And then God's strength is in the clouds, is what the scripture tells us. So if God's strength is in the clouds, he led and guided them, the movements of them, the, God's people with the cloud. The cloud brought light and darkness, and the cloud was a visible sign of God's presence. What would be the parallel to the cloud for the Christian. Holy Spirit. I heard somebody say it. Because the Holy Spirit, he's the sign of God's presence to us today. Jesus said, I send you a comforter. What, I, you know, it's best that I leave because in my place is going to come the comforter the Holy Spirit. The sign of God's presence to the Christian today is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. It convicts us of sin, of righteousness, of truth, of judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides and leads us as well. I think it's Isaiah 63.10. And you will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. This is the Holy Spirit's job to guide 
God's people on an individual and personal basis. It's the Holy Spirit's job to help us to understand the word of God and then to make the applications to our own lives today. Right here, right now. He's our teacher. He's our guide. Uh, God's strength is in the clouds. And just as God's strength was in the clouds, according to scripture, so the Holy Spirit empowers the Christian to live the Christian life. And so I think the cloud is actually a pretty good illustration of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this, then, would be the, the point of verse 2, that they were all baptized unto Moses by water, and by the Spirit, which is the same baptism that Jesus taught. You know, Spirit, and by the water, and by the Spirit. And that the apostles taught in the New Testament scriptures. <coughs> Excuse me. So the Israelites were taught by one of the greatest leaders that ever lived. They were baptized in a similar manner to us today. Are you starting to see the parallels yet? The parallels have only begun. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. And it all eat the same spiritual meat. Here Paul begins to draw even more definite parallels between Israel's experience and ours. Now, the book Patriarchs and Prophets has this incredible quotation that describes what the manna was to the children of Israel. The manna falling from heaven was for the sustenance of Israel was a type of him who came from God to give life to the world. Said Jesus, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And among the promises of blessing to God's people in the future life, it is written, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Revelation 2, verse 17. Jesus Christ is really the life giver. We gain our sustenance from him alone. We must partake of, chew, masticate, eat, digest the, the, what Christ has given to us in his word Christ said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come unto, into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. So let's hear the word today. Let's do more than just hear, though. Let's believe the word of God. But let's do more than even believe, because the devils believe and tremble. Let us be found doers of the word of God. Allowing Christ to work in and through us, choosing to cooperate with him. Verse four, and did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The origin of that physical symbol or the origin of that symbol was 
was a story where the Israelites were camped in Rephidim. They were camped in Rephidim without a source of water. The people began to distrust God and demanded Moses give them water to drink. They questioned Moses and God. Moses then cried out to God, what shall I do unto this people? And God told Moses to smite the rock in Horeb and the Lord would bring forth water from it. This is a good story of cooperation with the divine, by the way. But in Psalm 78, verses 15 and 16, we read, He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused water to run down like rivers. I love that, that beautiful way of putting it in Psalm 78. By the way, the key to unlocking 1 Corinthians chapter 10, specifically verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. If you want to understand 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, you have to read Psalm 78, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. Because Paul makes reference to the stories as David and the psalmist tells them in Psalm that you would not be able to trace back to the original story. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. All three of those chapters contain tellings of the children of Israel's experience. And Paul, in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, makes reference back to those stories. But he often makes reference back to the story as it was told in one of those chapters in Psalms, rather than the story as you find it in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Does that make sense? Mostly Numbers. So there's your key to unlocking 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 10. Um, it's, it's those chapters in the Psalms. So if you want to go do some homework and be all prepared when I come back to talk about verses 6 through 10, you can go ahead and do that if you'd like. But anyways, I just think it's the coolest study to go back and try to find what Paul is referencing because there's a couple of these verses where it's like, you don't know what he's talking about or which story it is, unless, for sure, unless you go back and you compare it with Psalm, with the book of Psalms. So anyways, just that's a cool side note. So Psalm 78 verses, let me find it where I am. Psalm 78 verses 15 and 16. That's what we just read. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 411, we read, The smitten rock was a figure of Christ, and through this symbol the most precious spiritual truths are taught. Isn't it nice that Paul's making reference to these most precious spiritual truths when he's giving this advice to people living at the end of time? I, I just love this. The smitten rock was a figure of Christ. As the life-giving waters flowed from the smitten rock, so from Christ, smitten of God, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, the stream of salvation flows for a lost race. As the rock has been once smitten, so Christ was to be once offered to bear the sins of many. Our Savior was not to be sacrificed a second time, 
And it is only necessary for those who seek the blessings of his grace to ask in the name of Jesus, pouring forth the heart's desire and penitential prayer. Such prayer will bring before the Lord of hosts the wounds of Jesus, and then will flow forth afresh the life-giving blood symbolized by the flowing of the living water for Israel. I can actually you know, read the whole chapter there. It's a short one in Patriarch and Prophets, and it's worth reading. The Israelites had access to the water of life, which came from the Savior of the world, just like we do. Jesus has offered us his living water. In John 4, verses 10 through 14, when he's talking to the woman at the well, Jesus said, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest ask have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence thou hast, from whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Revelation 22, verse 17 speaks of this water of life. It says, um, uh, let us, uh, it invites us to drink of the water freely. In Revelation 22, verse 17, obviously, I have to read it. I actually think I wrote a scripture song for this one. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let him that hears say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Yeah, so that's the song I wrote for that so I could remember that verse. Uh, Revelation twenty two seventeen. Let's drink freely of that water of life. And so then let's read verse 5. So here, yeah, let's read verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So what in the world went wrong. Verse 5 actually has all the keys to unlocking what went wrong within the verse when, when compared with the rest of Paul's writings. It's really cool. But this question, I think, is the real reason why Paul's giving us these words of advice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because Paul is saying, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant that your fathers, the children of Israel, were under the cloud. They had the visible guiding presence of God. They ate of the manna. They were baptized of water and of the spirit of the cloud. 
They ate spiritual meat and drank spiritual drink. In fact, he says in verse 4, the a drink did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then he's saying, but of many of them, God was not well pleased. And I think for us, this should be a challenging question. Why? How come you could have these people who were baptized, Seventh-day Adventists, taught by the Doug Bachelors, Mark Finleys, like, you know, great spiritual leaders within the church. You know, that was, they had the best spiritual instructors. You know, the most incredible pastor that ever lived, other than Jesus. They have every spiritual advantage that you would expect from a living, healthy, breathing Christian. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. And how do we know that? Well, it's evidenced because they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why? How much longer will you allow me to preach this morning? Probably 15 to 20 minutes. 15 minutes? Would that be all right? Okay. If anybody, you know, like needs me to stop, just like stop me. Because <laughs> um, I get really, really excited about studying the Bible. Amen. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I just love digging into God's word. So here we are in verse five. Why wasn't God well pleased? You just ruined the next, like, four passages I was going to bring up. <laughs> okay, so you cut right to the point. Unbelief. But let's just not take Rodney's word for it. Let's be Berean Bible students and find out where the Bible says that. So, <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. Of course we believe you, Rodney. Of course we believe you. No, 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 no. No need to apologize. Of course we believe you. <laughs> Hebrews. The point is, they didn't recognize God. They had no hold on Jesus. That's it. They didn't have a real hold on Jesus. Yeah. They knew God. They recognized God. They listened to God. They even heard his voice. And I haven't, I haven't heard God's voice personally speaking to me. So they even bested me there. And that's why I feel like this is a real warning to me. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Start around eh, 16, 15. While it is today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Ah, oh, provocation. It's connected, actually, to another another uh, verse there in 1 Corinthians 10. But anyhow. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. 
But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? So in 1 Corinthians 10, they were overthrown in the wilderness. In Hebrews chapter 3, he just comes out and says their carcasses were left in the wilderness. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that, what? Believed not. So we, and then he just cuts straight to the chase in verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That's what Rodney said. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Here we have a, a blown up picture of what happened in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and why God was displeased with the Israelites. And why Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of these examples and of the children of Israel and how we need to learn from them. It's because we've been left a promise of entering into the eternal rest of God. We've been promised not an earthly Canaan, but a heavenly one. We've been promised eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been promised so many things, even promised to see the glory of his appearing if we should be alive when he comes or if we should die in the faith before then, we'll still see his appearing. We have exceptional promises for us living today. And that's why Paul says, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Didn't he just tell us in 1 Corinthians 10 that they drank the same spiritual drink and that they had the manna and that they were baptized? And he's like, you know what? You've been baptized. You've had this spiritual manna. You've had this spiritual drink. Don't enter into the trap of unbelief. And, he's, and, he, and he lays it right out. He's like, for they had the word preached unto them, but it didn't profit them not being mixed with faith. What's the opposite of unbelief? Faith. Here, right here, they didn't have the faith. 
And then there's a beautiful promise in verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest. Amen. So, like, let me just keep going. The Israelites did not mix their intellectual understanding with faith and did not enter into God's rest, both immediate peace and the promised land. It appears to me, and we'll see this more clearly, that the only way we can have a different experience than ancient Israel is by mixing our understanding of the gospel with a living, experimental faith. Evidently, you can. And I think that's why Paul writes to us and says, like, pay attention. Don't make that same mistake. You may not have the same evidence of God's power they did. And I think that's one reason why, you know, Jesus, when he's speaking to the disciples, he said, you see me now after the resurrection and you believe. He's like, but blessed are they which do not see and believe. You know, and I think this is where this whole concept of faith begins. Because, you know, if, if you've received this impression that, from me so far, that God is arbitrary and he's a tyrant that has to be pleased and appeased in order for, you know, us to be saved, I'm really sorry. Let me set this study in its proper context. About 6,000 years ago, God created the special planet. And on it, he put special people. He put Adam and Eve and eventually us. But then things changed. After Adam and Eve sinned, they could no longer communicate with God face to face. The God who created and formed them, who loved them more than anyone else, had been separated by sin. Now the relationship between a God of love and sinful humanity had changed as well. Jesus was now, by necessity, separated from us. His glory is a consuming fire to sin, and it would just burn us up if he was to meet us face to face today. But Jesus had a rescue plan. God had been doing his utmost to win the love and trust of his dearly loved people. In the process, he's communicated with us his love through his prophets, nature, divine providence, just to name a few things. Adam and Eve had to trust God's counsel about the forbidden tree. But after the fall, faith took on a whole new dimension. Believing an invisible yet all-powerful God became critical to enjoying a relationship with him. God has done all that he can possibly do to inspire our confidence in him and his word. So when we talk about faith and pleasing God, it, it's not that God's arbitrary and that we have to somehow have this, you know, manifestation of faith to make him happy with us. It, it's that when we're experiencing a relationship with God by faith, God is, well, naturally well-pleased. He loves to see us experience peace and rest in communion with him. He loves for us to know, to have that certainty that even though we don't know what tomorrow holds, we know who holds tomorrow. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what brings him that delight and joy. He's pleased to see us partake of the water of life, which he's offered so freely to each of us. It brings our Heavenly Father delight to see his children enjoying a new life in Christ. It pleases God when we experience what it means to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And if I asked a definition of faith, what would you say? Hmm? <laughs> you know, most of us think, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. How practical is that, though, for me today? <clears throat> Christ once said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And that was in the story of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. I'm running out of time. Write it down. Look it up. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Jesus answered the centurion's plea for help to heal his servant. I will come and heal. The centurion quickly interjected, Master, that won't really be necessary. I believe that you are God and have all authority in heaven and earth. I understand that your word has power. Because I trust you and therefore trust your word, I am willing to let you just speak the words of healing and I know they will accomplish the task. The centurion was willing to entrust the life of his servant, whom he dearly loved, to the power of Jesus' word. Jesus finished the conversation with the following words, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. A real living faith is taking Christ at his word, believing his promise when things aren't going well, claiming God's strength to overcome, choosing to serve God when we don't understand why or how. Letting Christ handle life's problems and ills, work, relationships, etc., and acting upon God's promise as if it were a present reality, which makes it so, are all real-life applications of faith. Jesus himself quoted Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is God's word that brought the worlds into existence. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. You know, the heavens were made, you know, uh, by, by the word of God. And they, you know, stand and exist and were created by it. It's the creative power contained in God's word that recreates us into his image. Jesus stands behind his word. He never lies for what he says must come to pass. Our great lover is all-powerful and wants each one of us to have a trusting, loving, life-changing relationship with him. To live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To claim precious promises of mercy, hope, peace, joy, trials and victory, to trust God when the reasons for life situations are not understood, to rely on the word of God only for life, strength, belief, and the fulfillment of God's promise, to trust one's all, life, speech, service, heart, mind, strength, family, friends, all that is precious, to the care of our loving God is a simple definition of living by faith. My prayer is that each one of us would experience living by faith in our dear Savior and his word, a real relationship with our real Lord.
have so much raw material. But it pretty much all then comes down to this. He that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. <clears throat> Therefore, let us not be ignorant of the examples of those who have run this race before. Yes, this is the same race that our fathers ran. Our fathers' experience is very similar to our own. The Israelites were all baptized by water and by the presence of God. They had a dedicated spiritual leader, one of the best. Provided for miraculously, just as we are, they ate the same spiritual meat as we fed on the same bread of life that we study, drank the same spiritual drink, the water of life that we have the free offer of partaking of, and heard the same gospel that we have the privilege of being inundated with. Yet, God was not well pleased with them, and because of their unbelief, they fell as carcasses in the wilderness. Our experience will be the same as that of the Israelites, unless we learn the lessons from God's word and their experience that God wants us to learn. In the, in the course of this sermon, we've covered you know, how Christ, um, uh, actually, I didn't have a chance to cover this, how Christ and Enoch both pleased God. The Bible writes of Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11 that he pleased God. And twice God spoke of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says that with many of them, God was not well pleased. But Christ and Enoch did please God. And the same way that they pleased God, by having a living experience and allowing him to dwell in their lives, is the same way that we please God. How does Christ dwell in us? By faith, practically. Ask Jesus for the fulfillment of his promise in your own life. God is faithful who has promised. Believe that he has heard and answered your prayer. Claim the promise as your own. Receive that which is promised. Take God at his word. Act upon the evidence of what you do not yet see, except by faith. On the closing note, we read that the just shall live by faith. Proverbs 4 verse 18 says, But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. After Christ has justified us by faith in his, Christ's word and sacrifice, he then leads us and guides us. We continue to follow Christ by faith, living, you know, living by faith, and become more like him each day until the day when Christ comes and says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. So do we really believe the Bible today? Do we really believe that we may attain the knowledge of God that is presented before us in the text? Do we believe every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God? Is that what we're living by each day? Do we believe the words that have been spoken by prophets and apostles, by Jesus Christ, who is the author of all light and blessing, and in whom dwelleth all richness and fullness? Do we really believe in God and his Son? And this is the question I want to leave us with today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you've been so good to us. You've given us an example of your leading, your guidance, your love, your dealings in the past. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn 
learn the lessons you'd have us to learn. learn have, help us to sit at your feet, listen to your words, and allow them to transform our life and our practices. Father, make us more like you. Help us to reflect your glory to those around us by being loving, caring, kind, by being patient under provocation, by, by pushing forward even when times look dark, and, and trusting that even though we don't know what tomorrow holds, you do, and that you'll lead us and guide us today. Father, our lives are in your hands, and we just want to thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.